Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very honored to have you here today. Okay, today's episode is a Dharma talk that I gave a few nights ago, and I'm calling it Expanding the Zone of Peace, because basically the heart of this talk is around what it means and looks like to play our mental, psycho-emotional edge in a meditation practice similar to the way we play our physical edge in a yoga posture, particularly if you practice yin yoga. So uh, in playing our edge skillfully, wisely, and compassionately, what my main point of this talk is, is that in doing, in practicing the edge that way, we will uh, become more tolerant to the zone of discomfort. So the zone of our experience that's outside our safe, peaceful, comfortable zone. And in developing more tolerance to it, we start to adapt and develop skills that help us navigate our zones of discomfort with greater greater improvisational power, in a way. We can uh, deploy wisdom and compassion or kindness and peace in in very creative ways to help us uh, become more adaptive to experiences in life that are uncomfortable. And so this, this is a... This, this approach to practice fits in with a path whose aim is to develop a capacity or ca- multiple capacities for supporting a life uh, to be at peace with conditions as they are, or to be uh, to experience a peace independent of conditions. Um, so th- th- this is why we need to, if we're going to approach the path that way, we need to have a, a training, kind of a, a, a pedagogy, a, a practice path, whereby we develop those skills and gradually expand our zone of peace. So that's today's talk. Um, And before I give you the audio of today's talk, I just want to say that if you're new to the podcast, welcome. It's great to have you here. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. Um, And if you're a regular, if you've been coming, stopping by regularly, great to have you back. Always good to have you here. Um, All I'm going to ask you is if you're able, and you haven't already, but if you're able and interested, please consider supporting the show. Um, we put out this podcast free of charge, and there is a lot of work. There's 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 fees involved in that production, um, and there's our general livelihood in, as well. That uh, if you're interested in helping support our work uh, here, then you can do that in a few simple ways. One is just to take a class with us. Uh, you could buy a book from us. I have a book on meditation called The Buddhist Playbook that I co-wrote with my late dear friend Michael Brooks. Terry and I have a suite of online courses on meditation, yoga, energy medicine, and those are called the Sublime Quartet. Those are on our site too. And if you really dig or become hip to what we're doing here and you want to practice with us regularly at a reasonable rate for a monthly membership, we have an online practice community we're calling our Sangha. We have a specific name for that that I'll be deploying and rolling out in probably another few weeks. But Uh, We're calling it the Sangha for now, and if you'd like to become a member, that's another way just to support our work in an ongoing way. So if you're able, thank you so much. If you've already supported us, thank you. Double thank you for you. Uh, We wouldn't be here if it weren't for your generosity. So thank you very much, and without further ado, I now give you today's talk called Expanding the Zone of Peace.
tonight, I want to pick up on some of the themes I was addressing last week's in last week's talk. Um, and last week, I tried to I started to speak about how um, during a, during some of my teaching, when I was uh, collaborating with a sports psychologist at Boston University, that we kind of stitched together various approaches to mindfulness and and specifically tried to speak to how. Um, mindfulness training, both meditative and non-meditative, so John Kabat-Zinn mindfulness and Ellen Langer style meditation or mindfulness, can can be fused together as a way to support kind of the mindsets or mindset that's beneficial for performance. And that can sound like it's very specific around, say, sport or music or um, acting or even just career performance. But I would, I would want to expand on that this week and suggest that when I speak about performance, we're really talking about how do we how do we engage with our life? What kind of what kind of being are we bringing to the stage of our life, and and how can the meditation process support skill sets that allow us to be with our life with greater ease and wisdom and, and compassion? <clears throat> so tonight, the, the kind of the emphasis that I want to focus on is. Is, is sort of an expansion of this idea of how meditation can foster and help nourish and facilitate our growth. Um, and in exploring that question, how meditation can help support our growth, I think it's always helpful to just kind of touch back to the central premise or the central intention of meditation as I'm teaching it. And, and I should say the way I'm sh trying to share it, in my view, is in, is in alignment with what you could call the Dharma. And the Dharma is a term that is found in, in various Indian religions, um, but particularly in Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and the way I'm using the term inspired by those traditions, just fr I'm framing it in a more secular, secular way, but the way I'm going to use the term is that the Dharma is both a path and ultimately a realization of how to be with life free of conditioned habit patterns of reactivity, whilst also strengthening the qualities of, of mind and heart that support thriving. So how can, we be, how can we be with life as it is and attenuate or mitigate all the various habit patterns of reactivity that, you know, I would say get baked into us from both natural selection and the particular unique cultural experience we have and family experience that we have growing up. But all of that comes together and, and kind of gives us a posture towards life that is often a, a defensive posture, a, de a defensive position. And, and the Dharma is learning how to be with life as it is, or to, how to flow with life as it is, or as I'm trying to convey more and more here, how to improvise over the difficulty challenges that life presents so that we can experience a thriving in the midst of whatever we may be experiencing. So essentially this is, a, this is a, an approach to the Dharma that emphasizes how we can grow, how we're growing. Oftentimes, um, and this really tripped me up for many years in my own practice, but oftentimes the Dharma can be presented in such a way that it, it sounds like there's a specific series of insights you're supposed to have that line up with what somebody said a few hundred or thousand years ago, or a certain set of experiences you're supposed to have that will line up to a, a codified understanding of what realization or awakening means. And I want to kind of, 
uh, as we started last week, really try to reframe things to the specific dynamics of everybody's experience and how we can see into our experience in such a way that we really start to per- both perceive the Dharma, the truth of things, we see the truth of how it is in our own experience directly, and then in seeing the truth through a process of receptivity and seeing the truth, then practicing how to play over the truth of what we experience, how to be with that experience, how to, how to literally dance, sing, um, jiggle, if you will, how to be with our experience in a way that mitigates unnecessary reactive conditioned forms of suffering. And um, part in part of this talk, um, I'll be using some language that I have, I'm going to steal from um, one of our Sangha members, Laurie Glenn. Um, Laurie, as many of you know, substituted, she was a sub for my yin class last week, and she'll be one of the um, visiting teachers to our Monday night program. Um, and uh, in sort of setting up the details and logistics for her to, to sub my class last Wednesday, we also got into a little bit of a Dharma rap together on the phone. And we were talking about, she was res- responding to some of the things I said in the class. And then as she said, things that kind of clarified some more things for me. And one of the things she ha- helped me see more clearly was um, this, this developmental stage model of growth or how uh, we the practice does facilitate a, a process of, of ever widening, ever deepening growth in ourselves. And she used language that I think uh, as if I remember the conversation, she was borrowing from uh, Dan Siegel, another kind of well-known mindfulness advocate. But the language I'll be using tonight from Laurie that I heard was the idea of there being a zone of comfort. And that's where we start. We start out with a, a safety zone of comfort. And then as we open to things as we are, that op- opens us into a zone of tolerance. And the zone of tolerance is distinguished from the zone of comfort in that it's not so comfortable. So you know, you've all probably seen that that little diagram that is have been turned into a meme that has a point in a circle, and the point in the circle says, "This is your comfort zone," and then there's a point outside the circle that says, "This is your the the the, the, the zone of discomfort," and then there's a line that connects the two and says, "When you get out here, that's is your this is the, the the zone of growth." So when you're outside your comfort zone, that's when you're going to be growing. So. <clears throat> That's probably what I, want, what I want to expand on. That's how do we actually ex- explore that process? How do we explore that, that that cliche meme within the specifics and details and, and, and experiences of our meditation journey? So we begin with a zone of comfort. We then get our ex- ourselves exposed to a zone of tolerance where we, the, in the zone of tolerance, things aren't so comfortable, but the key feature is we can tolerate the discomfort. So it's still, it's sort of the, the, the edge of our expanding zone of safety. And then beyond the zone of tolerance, there's going to be a zone of intolerance. There are the aspects of life that we find at moment, at, in present moment conditions, we, aspects of life that we feel to be intolerable. And in the course of playing our edge, which is sort of the, the key um, rubric of approach that an improviser will have as they come into their meditation. As you play your edge, you want to recognize and establish your zone of comfort clearly. And I'll, I'll be talking about that, how that applies directly to the meditation instruction shortly. You start out with your, your zone of comfort, and then 
you gradually find yourself opening to content. You, you start to open yourself to experiences in your mind and heart and body that are outside of that zone of comfort. And as long as you're playing the edge of tolerance, you're in the zone of tolerance wisely, you're not getting too far into the zone of intolerance, which causes injury. Both, you know, and I'll play, apply to yin yoga. So the, the yogis in the room, yoginis can, can see what that, how that goes on in the yin yoga practice. But as long as you're not getting into the zone of intolerance for too long, your zone of tolerance becomes something that you adapt to. Your being begins to adapt to the, the garden variety discomforts that you find within your zone of tolerance. And slowly, with, with familiarity and practice, I think you're going to find that things that felt to be in, uncomfortable in that zone of tolerance suddenly start to feel more comfortable with greater practice. doesn't mean you like them necessarily, but the, the sting, the agitation, the resistance, the why me, why is this happening? I don't want this. All this, the, the psychological overlay to experience to life as it is, all the way that the mind resists the way life is, all the ways we've been looking at for the last four or five months through the hindrances, those hindrances get quieter as the more our zone of tolerance matures into a more stable zone of comfort. So, you know, if we start out with a zone of comfort, we have this little edge of this plate of, or this window of, 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 of tolerance, as the phrase Laura used, a window of tolerance. And then we have this, this window of intolerance, a zone of intolerance. We want to work within our zone of tolerance with skillfulness with inquisitiveness, with compassion, with interest to really get to know it. And in getting to know that which spooks us within the zone of tolerance, we start to become more and more comfortable. And then again, the word comfort can be misleading because um, it, it implies, you know, things start to feel like you're in a very luxurious bed or sofa and, and wrapped up in comfortable cozy blankets and you're being served comfortable like hot delicious teas and things that's that's very comfortable so perhaps the better phrase is like a, a zone of safety you can feel safe and not necessarily be comfortable so i mentioned yin yoga and in my first encounter with yin yoga when i wake up go back 20 years when i started to, to uh i got introduced to the practice you know i'd say that it took me out of my zone of comfort in the yoga landscape very quickly because I had been used to doing a form of yoga, namely Iyengar yoga, which I still have a ton of respect for and love. But I've been used to doing a style of Iyengar yoga where I got very familiar with the kinds of sensations that come in, up in that practice. You know, I, I was familiar with strong stretch sensations. I knew how to play my edge skillfully within that practice. But when I got to yin, you know, and, I, and, and the teacher said, just relax the muscles and stay relatively still for four or five minutes. The level of sensation that came up was unlike anything I'd experienced anywhere else. And, 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 and precisely be also because the teacher didn't give a lot of alignment cues as I was conditioned to receive in Iyengar practice, I started to feel a lot of fear. The sensations were really intense and there, there seemed to be a dereliction of duty from the teacher to adequately teach me how to align my body in a, in a, in a, in a proper way. 
And so I felt I was actually very much outside of my zone of tolerance. Even I thought I was getting into a zone of discomfort or sort of intolerance that I was getting, causing myself harm. But bit by bit, class by class, practice by practice, when I started to really listen past my fear, and it took me a while to listen through my fear to actually hear what the teacher was communicating. But as I listened to what the teacher was communicating, primarily Sarah Powers, it became clear that the, the sensations I was feeling were to be expected. She normalized the experience of the sensation. She said, this is what this tissue feels like when we exercise it in this particular way. I was like, oh, if this is normal, this is not a mistake, I can be with it longer. I can check it out. I can, I can, I can tolerate it. So then the sensations moved out of the, like with greater knowledge, the sensations that I was experiencing shifted from being intolerant, like, like I was projecting that they were terrible for me. They became into the zone of tolerance. And then in working with them, I started to see that not only were they okay, that they in tolerating them I, and not running from them, I was able, able to start, the, start to deeply repattern my whole response to similar things. I could, because I could see more clearly and more explicitly in my practice how my mind generated reactions above and beyond what was sort of necessitated by the situation. If you've taken a class that you've been really annoyed and you know what I'm talking about, when you, when you blame the teacher for holding you too long in the pose, when you blame the teacher for talking too much, when you blame the teacher for not talking enough, <laughs> on and on, that's the mind's reaction over and above what is necessitated by the condition. And then, of course, once I got used to the sensations, then I really had to get my head wrapped around the fact that alignment considerations were very different. And I used to think in the early days, and this is the way we all thought in the early days, that in yin yoga, yin yoga was a unique situation where alignment rules needed to change. Meaning there wasn't one size fits all for everybody. But as I got to know and understand and learn more about why Paul Greeley taught alignment the way he did, and the reason he taught the alignment the way he did was because he understood, he'd done enough study to realize that everybody's skeletons were profoundly different. And because of everybody's skeletons were profoundly different, it would be impossible for a teacher to give a one-size-fits-all cue to be appropriate for everybody. And so the best we can do in yin yoga, and this is what I'm trying to extrapolate to the practice of meditation as well, the best we can do, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all cue. I can't give you a one-size-fits-all pattern. I can give you the basic idea of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to develop, or suggest those things, like what you might try to do, and try to leave it open-ended for you. But in understanding what you're trying to do, what your intention is, then I try to give you tools. Any good teacher will try to give you tools so you can evaluate whether your experience is in alignment with the intentions you hold. But for me as a teacher, particularly coming back to the issue of alignment, having very, very firm, year like many years, I should say, I had many years of alignment training in Iyengar yoga from 
people like from the Iyengars themselves when I was in India to senior world-class, very respected teachers. And I came to the very uncomfortable disquietude of realizing that a lot of what I had learned was right only some of the time. <laughs> a lot of what I had learned was wrong a lot of the time because of this issue of, of skeletal variation. So that created this whole very uncomfortable zone of tolerance of realizing that I, what I had absorbed wasn't always going to be correct, wasn't always going to serve the unique individual. And so then I had to change the way I spoke about doing poses. And that, that involved the process of unlearning things to then develop a better, more functional way of speaking to the practice. But this is the process of growth. You know, we, we get into our comfort zone, get into a, a zone of familiarity where we feel safe. I know where the foot should go in Trikonasana. I know where the knee should be in Parshvakonasana. You don't need to know those poses, but just I knew where everything should be. And then I realized after studying with Paul, I didn't know. And because I didn't know, I didn't know how to speak about it. And I was I was uncomfortable for a while. So that's it like, brought me into a zone of, tol of tolerable discomfort. But rather than just kind of retracting or contracting back around the old way, doubling down, which many people have done. I won't, I'll, they, they can't handle the cognitive distance of the new information. They just have to reject it, slash it down and double down in kind of a fundamentalist strict way on what was already known and just start parroting the other teachers that you've had. Well, so-and-so says this, so it has to be right. That gets into a scary slope if you take it too far cult of personality. On a more humorous level or somewhat humorous level, um, you know, I've tried to share periodically how my, my recent life transition from being an urban dweller in Boston, not just outside Boston for many, many years, to living in a much more rural setting in Maine has exposed me to a new zone of discomfort zone of tolerance outside my comfort zone and recently i've become very very cognizant of this around the the blooming of spring and the 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 um the omnipresence now of ticks these little pests that can be some of them can be carriers to the very very difficult disease of lyme lyme disease and as an acupuncturist for years, I've worked with every season and throughout the year, I work with a, at least a two or three or four clients that are struggling with, with the downstream effects of Lyme. And so I've known how, how like life disrupting Lyme can be. And um, coming from a medical family myself, you know, there's been always been a huge emphasis on precaution, a huge emphasis on prophylaxis to prevent sort of unnecessary medical complications or unnecessary contracture of diseases. So I've been outside my zone of comfort for the last few weeks. Every time I go out for a walk with my dog, I find at least one tick on him. And I'll be sitting there reading my book, 
watching a program on the television, lying in bed, kind of breathing myself to a state of unconsciousness. Amidst all these activities, the normal modest tingling sensation or tickling sensation of maybe cloth against skin or the breeze against my neck, suddenly that benign normal bodily sensation transmogrifies to certainty that there's a black critter, namely a tick, crawling up my neck. And sometimes, this is why we get wired this way from evolution, sometimes it's accurate. And because it's accurate, it heightens my vigilance for every little squirm. And it's a miracle to me that I haven't like stripped off already while I'm talking to you to check my, my torso or my legs or whatever. <clears throat> now this has been this is obviously ratcheted up my anxiety some and um and, and dear terry has had to had to weather some of this anxiety and and, and ways that i've tried to make sure that, the, that we are all safe and 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 protected and the house is secured and time and again she keeps saying to me she's like you know i've been here for a long time i've lived in this town for a long time and you just, you figure it out. You figure out how to, to check. You figure, you get your routines in place. You, you, you do take, take care of precautions, but it becomes a way of life. And you don't have to be obsessive. You don't have to be neurotic about it. These are my words, not hers. She's much kinder than I am. But she's, you know, she's basically saying, you know, be concerned. It's not, it's not something to forget. Or, but, but, you know, you have to live your life. And initially, I bristled this kind of suggestion. I thought, no, 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 no. If I'm going to keep myself and herself and our dog safe, I need to be extra vigilant. But with time now, it's been a few weeks, <laughs> I can see that what felt really intolerable to me at first then got into a zone of tolerance. It was uncomfortable but workable. And more and more, you know, the ticks haven't changed. I'm still picking a few off my dog. I have to do daily checks after every every walk we have. have. To do twice, thrice checks on myself and Terry, but it's become just as she predicted. It's sort of a it's become a normal way of life, and I'm actually comfortable now with the flow. I don't love it. I wish it weren't the case, but I'm no longer you know losing literally losing sleep over it at every little crawl. I do a thorough check check the bed, check my body, check everybody's bodies, do the best I can, and then trust that, that it's all set for the night, <laughs> for the next few hours or, or something like that. So I hope those examples, whether it's the yin yoga development, my, my relationship and maybe your relationship to yin yoga, or you know, just the, the more, more germane example of, of, of adapting to the changing conditions of nature and the world around us, that life is going to constantly reveal, if you're awake, and I should say, if you're, if you're paying attention and reflective, life will reveal where you don't feel comfortable. It's really as simple as that. And then from recognizing that, the practice, the meditation journey, is one of training skills or, or revealing skills or cultivating skills, whatever word you want to use, but we're, we're, we're harnessing skills here that let, allow us to better navigate the moments we feel we get out of our comfort zone. 
which is just another way of saying, you know, the, the Buddha's word dukkha. Dukkha is the experience of, of, of something that we don't feel like we can integrate or tolerate. So I, I, at the end of these talks, I've been trying to kind of put the theme of the talk in context with the instructions of the meditation that I give. And I want to do that again tonight. And I just want to say that the style of meditation I'll be speaking about, namely yin meditation, is really just, as I said in the workshop, my best description of meditation for anyone new. For anyone starting, this is these are the instructions I wish I had started with, that I've come to after many years of trying multiple systems and seeing sort of the common elemental features of all these systems. How can those systems, those elemental features be preserved, but also be reframed and rearticulated in such a way so that all the problems I've heard from meditators over the years aren't, don't become such big problems, namely thinking. Everyone complains about thinking. So how can we frame meditation so it's not a war with thought? You don't have to go into a civil war with your thinking mind. And as I spoke a few weeks back, how can we also um, decriminalize the sleepy process? We don't need to judge ourselves harshly for nodding off. And if you haven't had a chance, please go check out the, uh, the two-hour workshop that I gave a couple weeks back on yin meditation. Because in, in that talk, I really, or in that workshop, I get into ex exploring what I call the, I'm calling the primary pulse of consciousness. They call it consciousness is on or it's off. It's on or it's off. Meaning we're awake to it. We're awake and aware that we're aware. So this isn't, as I said in the workshop, this is not just like conscious that you're purchasing your groceries or that you're, you're conscious enough to get your groceries and get them into the car and get home without killing yourself. That's, that, that'd be, that could be one rudimentary definition of what it means to be conscious. But what I mean by it and what the, the, the wisdom traditions are referring to it is consciousness that's literally awake to itself. It knows that it's conscious as it's conscious. So right now, as a quick example, that not, doesn't need to be abstract. If you're hearing my voice and you're aware that you're hearing my voice, that, there, that there's a process of listening occurring, that's all it is. It's, it's a natural function of the mind to recognize itself, at least in humans. And I don't know about other species. So, and then in contrast to that, many times consciousness is not on, it's not awake to itself. We're kind of in a, we're living either, either awake or we're asleep, but we're in a dreamlike existence, kind of drifting through things, reacting in a knee jerk way. This is all like conditioned dream-like existence. And if we're interested in freedom, freedom is predicated on waking up to the being in the dream and then having ability to exercise a freedom of response to the dream, a freedom of response to what's going on. So, um, you know, consciousness goes on and off. It's wake to itself and then and it tunes out. And meditation at the first level is just getting comfortable with that. And as I tried to say in the workshop, many people when they come to meditation and um, they're taught that they have to be awake and focused. So they take it on, they take the waking up of consciousness to itself 
as a personal personal mission statement as the meditator. Someone asked recently, what's the difference between mindfulness and awareness? And I'll say more about this maybe next week, but mindfulness in general, if I were to like use what I hear as the kind of conventional view of it, mindfulness in general is something that the individual tries to do. It's a directed use of your attention to focus on something and be aware of it while you're focusing on it. So you're often trying to be mindful of your breath. That means pay attention to your breath. It's sort of a, synonymous with paying attention with some volitional agency or some volitional control over how it's being utilized or how it's being directed. And awareness, in my view, and, and I'm, again, this is not just my view, but awareness is what's aware of all of that. It's aware, it's aware of when you're trying to be mindful, when you're not mindful. It's aware of literally the flowing process of life as it is. And it's not something that you have to do to become mindful or to become aware. You don't have to do it. You simply relax and notice that it's a process that's always been going on. Your awareness is always aware of what it's aware of. We're just celebrating that fact in meditation, starting to appreciate that fact and, and exploring the implications of really stabilizing in that fact. So in practice, the phrase, there's two little acronyms I want to get out tonight. Um, one is that when you're awake to awareness, when you're hip to the mind being awake, the acronym I want is to consider is to have fun. Fun means to flow with understanding of now. F-U-N, fun. I'm riffing on something Cannonball Adderley said, my, one of my favorite jazz players said, you know, the last song they played was games and the next song was going to be fun. He said, F-U-N, fun. It's something you can do when everything's mellow. When everything's mellow in your practice and you're, you know, you're either in your zone of comfort or your zone of tolerance, have fun. Flow with understanding now. Flow and understand now. And that's what we, I kind of picked up last week with the Ellen Langer uh, cues around being mindful, to notice new things. Rather than trying to keep ourselves still and stopped and stable in relationship to what's flowing, her encouragement is to let yourself go with the flow. And I'll be continuing to build, like, re re recommend and build on that this week. But when your mind goes asleep, as I try to say, you know, if your mind takes a nap, you go unconscious for a while. You're not aware that you're aware. You're, you're swept into the mind wandering. Or the, the, the terrible way it's described, I think, is in a very disparaging way, a disparaging frame of calling it the, 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 the chattering monkey. That, that somehow we need to give the chattering monkey some kind of barbiturate or sedative so it behaves properly. I don't like that idea. 
the monkey mind is has been etched by evolution for millions of years. And we don't want to stop that. What we're doing is waking up out of identifying with it. You don't have to stop it. Stopping it puts you in the, in the driver's seat again as being the one who's aware. So <clears throat> when consciousness takes a nap, the acronym for that is not a problem. That's what my, friend, my teacher, Narayan Liebenson, used to say on our retreats. Your mind wanders, not a problem. It's just a nap. And if you remember, as I try to get in the workshop, if you remember that your own brain is the amalgamation of billions of atoms that traveled billions of years to come together right now to endow you with the faculty of consciousness. The universe took a long time to get you to where you are and doesn't it deserve a nap? <laughs> you took a long trip, wouldn't you wanna be able to have a nap? So mind wandering is just that. The universe through your consciousness is taking a nap and that's what it does. So no need to stop that. No need to prevent it. You can tolerate it and let it be. But with the instructions, the, the, fourfold, the fourfold points that I give on yin meditation, I've said, I'll say it in different ways each week, but we start with a perch. That's the first injunction, to, to find a neutral place in our body usually to rest the attention on. And I just want to, I've used that as a point of reference so we can see other things moving outside of the perch or beyond the perch. But tonight, I just want to consider the perch as a zone of safety. It's where you can hang out when things are mellow or when things um, are getting into the zone of intolerance. So that's, that's how we use the perch. We use the perch strategically not as a rule to keep the attention there, but it's a, it's a zone that we can begin from and return to whenever something intolerable that we perceive and deem and estimate to be intolerable, whenever something like that comes up. So you're never exposing yourself to a stressor beyond your capacity. And then from the perch, the injunction to be receptive comes to be receptive to your experience this is why i call it yin meditation to contrast it to forms of yang meditation that are more directive so rather than directing our mind to do something specific i'm suggesting we just open to life as it is receptively so that it will include any experience that occurs in, within the meditation nothing is out of bounds there's no distractions everything that occurs is part of the meditative process And one of the things we become receptive to, as I've been trying to say over the last several months, is that this opens um, opens us to life as it is, and also opening to life as it is reveals our habit patterns of resistance. All the hindrances, the desires, the aversions, the restlessness, the doubt, the confusion, the drowsiness. We experience our conditioning and the stories around that conditioning. And rather than trying to avoid those stories, 
rather than trying to silence them and come back to a spiritually sanctioned experience of the breath per se, I want us, I'm encouraging you, I should say, I'm encouraging everyone to, to play your edge with that experience, to assess yourself for yourself. Is this within my zone of tolerance? And if it is, and only if it is, but if it is within your zone of tolerance, this is where you explore it. So that's the third injunction. You start with a perch, zone of safety. You become receptive to your experience from the perch, whatever that may include. And you evaluate what's coming up along the, sca- the spectrum of zones of tolerance and zones of intolerance. And if at any point it gets into the zone of intolerance, you come back to your zone of comfort, your zone of safety, your perch. But within that zone, that crucial window or that growth window of, of zone of tolerance, this is where you can explore your experience and really look into the, the conditions of your re- reactions with compassion. And I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I encourage people to, when they find themselves wandering, to really spend some time when they wake up to it, when you realize you've wandered, check it out. What was your mind wandering into? And what was underneath that? What was fueling that? Listen into it. What did that mind state want? What kind of safety, what kind of security was it seeking? And listening that way, listening with a compassionate heart to the, to the, to the, to the, to the drives that, that, that push us, we start to see the limited nature of those drives. We start to see the inadequate strategies behind those drives, the incapability of those drives to ever produce or provide what they seek because they're seeking it through, usually through some sort of material reconfiguration. Meaning you're trying to get something to be configured to the way you want it, but we're dealing with a, a, a realm of, of ceaseless, in transi- uh, ceaseless tr- transience ceaseless change. So any strategy to get things to be right one way or another is going to be a limited, ultimately frustrating strategy. So that's where we come back to the Dharma. The Dharma is teaching us how to flow with life as it is, not as we want it to be. And then as I've already implied, the fourth principle is permission. Permission to stay with what's going on as if we deem it to be within the zone of tolerance, but permission to return to the perch as and when a zone, an experience that's intolerable presents itself. And just like I got more comfortable with a, with the front yard infested with ticks. I got more uncomfortable with not knowing what to tell students how to do their poses because I couldn't apply the same rules of alignment that I learned from one system to the new, the dawning realization that everybody was different. Just like I exposed myself to those zones of discomfort, but tolerable discomfort, I eventually started to grow new capacity to be with life as it is. And the reason why I think meditation is so good at supporting this growth is because your hangups, 
your fixation points, your resistances show up in your own simulation of your mind over and over again. The great, your greatest fears, your greatest worries, your anxieties, your, your greatest, deepest desires. If you're really listening, start to show up. And then in, with a compassionate heart of wisdom, we start to learn to be with them in the zone of tolerance to the point that we can become comfortable. The zone, our zone of com comfort is ever expanding as long as we continue to practice. I remember, I think I told you the story, but I mean, I'll close with this little bit. Uh, after I'd spent two months in the a forest meditation center in, in Myanmar with a very strict teacher, Saida Upandita, um, where, again, you, you, there weren't ticks, but you did get attacked by mosquitoes every day at 3.30. From 3.30 to 6.30 was the mosquito window. <laughs> and so you're meditating hour after hour, as and you, and you took an a vow not to kill another sentient creature. There's no, you, you could not swat your arm. You're basically becoming mosquito bait. And so that was just one of the many very difficult conditions that I had to practice with. And believe me, it was intolerable at first, really intolerable. But a year after that retreat, uh, Upandita was visiting the United States. He was at the forest refuge for several months, and which is a meditation center in, um, or meditation uh, retreat center in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts. And I arranged to go just see him and pay my respects for a little bit. And um, when I got to have my audience with him through the translator, I just conveyed that I, I really missed being able to practice with him, how much I missed my time in the forest with him and how deeply meaningful that time was. And he, through the translator, he said, why would you miss that time? You only had two meals a day. It was oily, greasy food. You got bitten by mosquitoes all the time. There was fear of snakes in the rivers around. You know, you, you could only sleep for four or five hours a night. Why would you miss that time? And the answer came because I, I, I said I, I was able to be with those, because I applied what you taught me, I was able to be with those conditions as they are. And I did not experience any suffering after a while. Yes, there was tremendous suffering for a period of time. But the suffering ultimately was revealed to be optional. Which is not to say, and I want to end on this note, not to say that we just become a doormat and like become indifferent or passive or detached from very real conditions, particularly social conditions, that need addressing. Not to say that. But on our first level, liberation from the conditioned reactivity of the mind, I would say that's a precondition for awakened engagement with our world to redress the ills that we, we encounter.
Okay, I hope today's talk gives you some food for thought and food for your heart. Um, it was a, I, I can feel more and more the direction that these talks are moving and to me and, and to many of the members that are showing up live, um, it, it has a really good directional feel to it. And that's part of the, the I, I should be clear that that direction that's developing is a result or an outgrowth of the ongoing conversation I'm having with listeners people that have taken trainees with me, as well as members of the, the online Sangha. Um, so thank you for all your input. If you do have questions or comments or ideas for me to explore or expand on, please email me at josh at joshsummers.net. Again, josh at joshsummers.net for any questions or ideas to uh, share with me. And um, also, you know, if you if you are interested in getting my semi-regular uh, letters from the path, these are sort of letter-like reflections that I send out a few once or twice a month. Um, please consider signing up for that. That's free. And finally, if you are able, we really do encourage you to consider helping out with the show. Um, there's some very simple, uh, inexpensive ways of offering support. Again, those are listed in the show notes, but you can take a class with us, buy a book, take a course, um, become a member. Very simple, easy ways to support the work that Terry and I are doing, and we thank you in advance for your help. Okay, I look forward to seeing you in my next episode, which will be a release of my recent conversation with Robert Wright on both reviving a failed meditation practice and how mindfulness can help develop courage. So I'll look forward to sharing that episode with you soon. This is coming out this Thursday. And until I see you then, take care, stay strong, and keep practicing.